You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. What book, besides the Bible, do you read more than any other? I know what some of you are thinking. What's a book? For me, the book I read, I think, more often than the other, except for the Bible, is Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I, uh, I read it for the first time in my 20s, and I have read it every two to three years since. Tolkien was a very serious Christian, and the story of the Bible is in all of his books. And I, I don't know anybody who can... Has, can portray good and evil more clearly than he does. And every time I read, I get new insights. I, I want to be a better person. And I'm more sensitive to the evil in me. If, if you've read Lord of the Rings or you've seen the film, you know that one of the major characters is the man Aragorn. And the first time the hobbits meet Aragorn at the inn at Bree, they're afraid of him. And they're suspicious of his offer to accompany them on their quest. He is a a hard-looking man who's lived a hard life. And they just don't know whether they can trust him. But as the hobbits debate this among themselves, finally Frodo says, I think if he were a servant of the enemy, he would look fairer but feel fouler. And uh, they take Aragorn with them, and he proves himself over and over again as he risks his life to save theirs. And as the story grows, Aragorn's greatness becomes more and more apparent. And it turns out that he is the, the long-ago prophesied king who will, who will come and defeat the enemy, restore the kingdom, and... and bring prosperity and peace back to Middle-earth. And uh, uh, I love the scene at the end of the book where uh, the enemy has been defeated. Everyone has recognized Aragorn as the, the king, even though he never looked like a king. And, and uh, Tolkien describes it this way, his coronation, when he is finally crowned king. It seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days, he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. Now, where do you think that Tolkien got the idea of an unrecognized king. Well, it's the story of Jesus, isn't it? The story of the Bible is one story. It's a rescue story. It's it's about how God saves people and his creation from evil and from death that Adam and Eve's rebellion plunged us into. And right after Adam and Eve fall, God promises to send one day a human savior who will undo the damage that they have done and restore people and restore the whole creation to what God 
created to be. And then throughout the Old Testament, we get more and more signs of how to, to recognize this coming Savior, this coming King, this coming Messiah, uh, until finally all of those prophecies are fulfilled in the New Testament. So the question is, if, if Jesus fulfilled hundreds of predictions, hundreds of signs and prophecies of what the Messiah would be like, why didn't more people recognize him? And that's what Isaiah 53 is about. Because Isaiah 53 actually predicts that the Messiah will be unrecognized, and very few people will see him. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at three things in Isaiah 53. The surprising Messiah in verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at the suffering Messiah in verses 4 through 6. And then the silent Messiah in verses 7 through 9. As we're in the servant songs of Isaiah, these are songs about this coming servant of God who will save the world. And, and there's two themes that seem to contradict each other as we go through these songs. There's a, a triumphal Messiah, but there's also a rejected Messiah. There's a victorious Messiah, but there's a suffering Messiah and a rejected Messiah. And the question that, that a lot of students of Isaiah come up with is, well, which is it? Are there two Messiahs? Is, is the Messiah triumphant or is he rejected? And Isaiah 52, verse 11 through 53, verse 12, puts both these ideas together and joins them together. This is exactly what God planned. And that's what we're going to be. This week we'll look at the suffering Messiah. Next week we'll look at the triumphal Messiah. So let's pray. Scripture says, be still and know that I am God. Let's take a moment just of silence to quiet your heart before the Lord and ask him to make you sensitive to his spirit and his word. Thank you for your spirit, Lord, that we may know the things you give us. We pray you'll be our teacher. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 of why the Messiah will be an unlikely Messiah is because he'll be a surprising Messiah. Look at what... what uh, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Apparently not many. When Philip, one of Jesus' very first disciples, meets Jesus, he, he runs to find his buddy Nathaniel. And he says, we found the Messiah, whom, Jesus, whom, whom Moses wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says, Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was goose bladder Arkansas in first century Israel. It was just a, a little nothing place in the backwoods region of how could anything come good come out of there? And that was that's the idea that that Jesus faced. 
People look at Jesus and they say, he can't be the Messiah. He doesn't look like a Messiah. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. In the Bible, the righteous are often compared to a great tree, a great fruit tree, which bears its fruit in its season, and everything they do, God bless. Jesus doesn't show up full grown. Jesus shows up like all of us, like a little baby. And, and, and Isaiah says he'll be like a, like a little twig coming out of the trunk of a tree that you normally would just prune off because it's not productive, or like a, like a dried-up root in the desert. That you, Nothing's going to come from that. That's what Jesus will appear like. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one with whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Who has believed our message? Who believes that this is the arm of the Lord revealed? Apparently not many. Jesus didn't look like the king people expected. He was not successful like the king people expected. Now, people followed Jesus for a little while while he healed them and fed them. But when he started saying that he was the son of God, and if you didn't honor him, you didn't honor God, and if, if you didn't love him more than your mom and dad and your kids and even your own life, you weren't worthy, people lost interest. And they began calling him a drunkard, and a glutton, and some even said he was demon-possessed. And, and by the time we get to the end of Jesus' ministry, just about everybody's gone. He's left alone. He doesn't look like the Messiah people expect. Just like Aragorn, he's, he doesn't look like a king. Because he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that brings us to the second thing that Isaiah tells us about him. Not only is he a surprising Messiah. He's a surprising Messiah because he'll be a suffering Messiah. In the Bible, there's a theme that there are two ways you can live your life. You can obey God. You can disobey God. You can trust God. You can trust yourself. If you choose to trust God, you will be blessed. If you rebel against God, you'll be cursed. And so as people look at this Messiah, they say, how can he be blessed by God? Look at all he suffers. Look at all the grief he bears. And Isaiah replies, that's true. But he's not bearing grief for his own sins. He's bearing grief for your sins. Look what he says. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Why is he suffering? He's suffering the grief we deserve. He's suffering the punishment we earn. He's suffering in our place. 
You know that, that verse, verse 6 there, Isaiah 53, 6, I, I read, it's the exact middle of the Bible. It's the middle verse of the whole Bible. And isn't it interesting that right in the middle of the Bible, we have one of the clearest explanations of the gospel in all the scriptures. That Jesus dies in our place. That, that Jesus' death on the cross for us wasn't something a bunch of crazy fishermen put together to make sense of the death of their rabbi. It, is, it was it, back 700 years before it happens, Isaiah says, this is what will happen to the Messiah. Jesus becomes a man to live the life we fail to live so God can credit his death, his righteousness to us who believe. He dies the death we deserve to die, dying on the cross in our place so God can forgive us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's the gospel according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He is a suffering Messiah because he suffers for us. Not only is he a surprising Messiah and a suffering Messiah, he is a silent Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. As Jesus goes through, you'll probably remember, as Jesus goes through the sham trial before the Roman Senate, as he is in tried before Herod and before Pilate, he never defends himself. He's like a lamb on his way to slaughter, seemingly oblivious to what's about to happen. And they had no evidence against him. Jesus could have walked out of the Senate that without being charged with anything, but he chose not to. He kept quiet. And Pilate even knows that he was delivered up, not because he was guilty of anything, but because the Jews were jealous of him. And he gives Jesus every opportunity to get out of it. And he is amazed that Jesus won't speak. Jesus accepts what's going to happen to him because he knows it is the eternal will of God to save us. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. No greater injustice in, in history than the only innocent man to ever live to be dot killed like a common criminal. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Nobody who watched Jesus crucified on that day understood that he is up there for me. He's taking the punishment that is due to me on himself. Nobody understood that. His grave was assigned with wicked men. On the south side of Jerusalem was the Valley of Gehenna. It was a big garbage dump. It was always on fire. All the garbage, all the sewage, dead bodies were burning there, maggots. The smoke, the smell were horrendous. In fact, Jesus used it as a, as a picture of hell. That's where Jesus' body should have been thrown along with the other guys who were crucified with him. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. My, my phone is speaking to me here, and it shouldn't be doing this. hate technology. 
When Jesus dies on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, goes to Herod, remember, and he asks for the body. And he gives Jesus the kind of burial he deserved. He puts him in his own grave and covers that, that tomb with a stone, just like Isaiah said would happen 700 years before. He is a surprising Messiah, an unlikely Messiah, because he dies in our place. During the uh, presidency of Andrew Jackson, one of the strangest cases in, in Supreme Court history made its way up through the courts. Jackson had given a presidential pardon to a man named George Wilson who had been condemned to hang for his crimes. But Wilson refused the pardon. And so the courts didn't know what to do. Do we hang this guy or do we let him go? And so it, the court passed, each court passes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And finally, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, the value of a pardon depends on its acceptance by the one offered the gift. If it is refused, it is therefore no pardon. And Wilson hung. A Christian is not a good person. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Any sheep here that have not gone astray? Have any sinless people here this morning? I see all those hands, right? Uh, now, we're all sinners. The only choice we have is, will I pay for my sins or will Jesus pay for my sins? Will I accept Jesus' pardon earned on the cross and God's forgiveness or will I choose to pay for my sins myself? So I want you to think, let's say this week you die and you find yourself in heaven standing before the throne of God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? How will you answer? Well, I think on the curve, I was probably better than most people. I certainly wasn't as bad as my neighbor next door. And, and I did go to church on occasion. And, and I did lead a Boy Scout troop. And I never cheated on my wife. And I paid most of my taxes. <laughs> or will you say, I am a great sinner but Christ is a great Savior. And he said, he who comes to me, I will no way cast out. I've come to him and thrown myself on his mercy. I've accepted his payment on the cross for my sins. That's what makes you a Christian. You're not a Christian because of what you do. You're a Christian by trusting in what he has done. Now, Jesus didn't die simply to get us into heaven. He died to get heaven into us, to restore us to the humanity that God originally created us to be. I've been thinking about a verse lately a lot from Matthew. Jesus said, it is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher. And that's really our goal as Christians, is to become like Jesus. And so I've been asking myself, what's enough? What's enough? What, what will finally make me content? What will satisfy me? Will inter, is the entertainment enough? Is pleasure enough? 
his success, our recognition, our comfort, our safety enough. I found that none of those things is enough. That you can have all those things and still be unsatisfied. That we cannot be satisfied by what we accomplish or by what we possess because those aren't what we were created for. We were created to become like Jesus and it is only by becoming like Jesus that we'll be satisfied. Jesus was a man of sorrows, but he's also the happiest man that ever lived. you ever think about that? Because he had the joy of the Lord. And he says to his disciples, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I say to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may become full. You want to have fullness of joy? Live like Jesus lived. And so I want to finish up real quickly here is, is, is how do we become like the Jesus of Isaiah 53? Does that make sense? What do we learn about becoming like Jesus from these verses in Isaiah 53? And fortunately, we don't have to guess because Paul has already done the work for us in Philippians chapter 2. I'm convinced that Philippians 2 is Paul's commentary on Isaiah 53. So let's read what Paul says. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. How do I think like Jesus thinks? By becoming a servant like Jesus became by putting other people's interests ahead of mine, just as he put my interests ahead of his, by becoming a servant. So let's look at how Jesus thought. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Those words, the form of God, in the Greek mean the essential nature of God. It's not talking about an outward form talking about being very God of very God. The Bible teaches that God is one God in three persons. You know that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All co-equal. All God. But Paul tells us that the Son did not regard his equality with the Father and the Spirit as something to cling to. But he gave it up. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. I understand Jesus emptying himself. It doesn't mean he stopped being God to become a man. But it means he voluntarily stopped exercising his powers as God in order to limit himself to our our human limitations. He wasn't God cleverly disguised as a human being. He was an actual human being subject to all of our limitations. So when Jesus does miracles, he doesn't do miracles because he's God. He does miracles because he's a man trusting in God. That's why he says, I can't do anything on my own. I can only do what the Father gives me to do. When Jesus knows what's in people's hearts, it's not because he's God. It's because his Father told him what was in people's hearts. 
So Jesus gives up his rights and privileges and powers as God in order to become our servant and take on all our limitations so he can live the life we didn't live and die the death we were supposed to die. And he takes the form of a bondservant. Form is the same word he uses earlier as the form of God. Now it's the form of a servant. It means the essential nature of a servant. Jesus has always been a servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Why does, what does Isaiah call him? He calls him my servant. So the Son, who is in nature a servant, becomes our servant, being made in the likeness of men. And that's where we get the first verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah. What did Jesus look like when he was made? Jesus could become, he could have looked like anybody. Right? So Jesus says, okay, what kind of man will I look like? I think I'll be below average. I think I'll be a, just a nobody you'd pick out of a crowd. You'd never see his face on Instagram. And so the first way we become like Jesus, according to Isaiah 53 and Philippians 2, stop seeking notoriety. Is that anti-cultural? It sure is, because everything in our culture is about being noticed, being recognized, being appreciated, being admired. And Jesus purposefully decides to become somebody that we're not attracted to, not someone who's not attractive. Boy, that goes against my... I'm, I'm almost 75 years old, and I'm still worried about looking, looking fat. How stupid is that? I am a vain man. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I am vain. I worry about other leaders getting more credit or being recognized or being asked to speak. And Jesus says, you think you're, you're serving me in that? You're not serving me. You're serving your own ambition. And so for me, becoming like Jesus is forgetting about how people see me. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus said, I do not receive glory from men. I'm not interested in people glorifying me. I'm not interested in people admiring me. I seek the glory that comes from God. And so if I'm like Jesus, I'm not going to worry about being invisible. I'm not going to worry about being unattractive. I'm only going to be concerned that God, who made me the way I am, uses me for his glory and his purpose. Does that make sense? Here's another way we become like Jesus in Isaiah 53. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To serve us, Jesus endured the ultimate of pain. So what that tells me, if I'm going to be a servant like Jesus, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be inconvenient. It's, I'm going to have to deny myself to do it. I was thinking about this. We've been in the same neighborhood for 40 years. And uh, I like my neighbors. And they tolerate me. And, uh, and yet, and yet, I don't think I've had much of a spiritual influence there. Uh, and it's not because I haven't prayed. I've asked God, please bring my neighbors to Jesus. 
But what I haven't done is I haven't inconvenienced myself for them. I haven't become their servant. I mean, when there's a 49er game on and my neighbor's across the street outside working, guess where I am? When I'm doing chores around the house and my neighbor's doing chores around the house, I don't drop my chores to go over and help him. I'm not going out and, and inviting people in our neighborhood over to dinner because nobody does that in our neighborhood and I don't want to be embarrassed and be rejected. I think so often as Christians, we think of evangelism as, as standing on a street corner and preaching, and that's fine. But I think the most effective evangelism we do is really loving our neighbor when it hurts and when it's inconvenient, and then telling them why we do it, treating others the way Jesus treats us. Does that make sense? So dying to notoriety, serving until it hurts, and then one other thing that I learned about becoming like Jesus from Isaiah 53. And notice Jesus humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as we saw at the end of Isaiah 53, he did that silently. He didn't call attention to it. He didn't gripe about it. He didn't complain about it. Isn't it interesting, in, in Philippians 2, where, where Paul is talking about becoming like Jesus, right after this passage... He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you may prove yourselves to be children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You want people to see Jesus in you? Shut up. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. I mean, it's not a big deal. Not a big deal. Instead of griping about how hard my life is and how unfair life is and how bad, and you can fill in the, the blank here, how bad the liberals, the conservatives, the politicians, the Democrats, the, the, the lawyers, the, the, the Seahawks, whoever is on the list today, instead of talking about how bad they are, shut up and keep silent. And stop griping and accept the life that God has called you to lead for his glory, just like Jesus did. Does that make sense? Jesus is an unlikely Messiah because he comes to suffer. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story for us either. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him. We'll talk about this next week. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbles himself so that God exalts him. He goes to the bottom. So God can raise him to the top. And Jesus promises that's God's plan for you and me too. In this life, we serve, we suffer, we walk the same path that Jesus walked so that in the next life, God can reward, God can recognize, God can exalt. If we die with him, we'll live with him. If we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. 
We have a choice every day. Jesus made it real clear. He said, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. I can choose to exalt myself today, to make me the center of life. And what will be the consequences of that? God is not mocked. God will make sure I'm humbled. Or I can follow Jesus and humble myself and not make it about me and make it about other people and do what I can to serve and not worry that I'm ignored or slandered or whatever it is. And my promise is that I will reign forever with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is enough that a disciple becomes like his teacher. I pray that we'll know it's enough and, and run the race you've given us with the goal to become like you, to walk as you walk. We pray in Jesus' name.